invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 4. Gospel of John chapter 4. For those of you who are visiting today, we uh, are studying our way through this Gospel. We come today to verses 27 through 42. John 4. <clears throat> you know, we live in a day of specialization. Most every part of life has now been, now has a specialist and an expert that does that. And our job is often reduced to uh, paying the bill. <laughs> in this age of specialization, uh, the church has been affected too. Nowadays, churches commonly have not just pastors, but endless other professional staff members church administrators, youth specialists, ministries coordinators, ministers of music and worship, Christian education directors, and the list goes on. And the congregation's job? Pay the bills, of course. Now I stop short of condemning any specific ministry of any particular church. Every church has got to do the ministry as best they know how. But however we do that, the Bible clearly teaches that the whole congregation is called to be ministers, not just to hire specialists to do ministry. We are called to be a ministering body of God's people, to actively participate in all of those areas which, in, in, in which we as a, as a culture of specialists are tempted to just hire an expert and just write a check instead of doing ministry. I start with that principle because it's kind of with that assumption that this text makes some sense to us. If we're not in a ministry, well then, when you hear what we have to say about this text, you'll say, well, you should just preach that at a pastor's conference. This is a pastor's conference. We're all pastors in a certain way in that we pastor some children or we, we, we shepherd a little flock of friends that look to us for spiritual leadership or we're evangelists who have contacts with people that nobody else is telling the gospel to and we're all in the ministry and as such then the words of encouragement and challenge that our text has for us apply to you, not just to me or my ministry friends. We are the ministry, the ministering community, the fellowship of God's uh, believer priests, if you will. Well, let me read the text. Verse 27. The context here is that Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. He's just told her that he's the Messiah. Disciples have gone into town. We pick up in verse 27. Just then his disciples returned. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you, don't, that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages, and even now the harvest he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. 
Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work. You have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. There are several different strands of thought going on here, several different kind of stories being worked out, as often is the case when we read things and different things going on at the same time. I'd like to kind of pick through there and divide it into three parts and learn three lessons from this text this morning. The first is this. Jesus changes people. Jesus changes people. You know, I think the most discouraging thing about working with people is that you have no power to change them. There are a lot of things I would like to change in this congregation, individual lives. I have no power to do so. Probably some things you'd like to change about my life. You have no power to do so. There's forces that are so strong. We inherit certain things in the genes. We grow up with family behavioral problems that are generations, uh, have been ingrained for generations. We have the influence of society around us with all of its values and all of its problems. And then there are invisible chains of past experiences that just bind our hearts and make, it unable for, make us unable to move in this direction or that. There's so many of these forces that surround us that it seems sometimes you would just despair that change is not possible. People are just what they are and nothing really is going to change. There's all kinds of evidence to that. But our text this morning reminds us the power of Christ. Jesus changes people. And we need to know that because these forces are so strong and we so see so little change that sometimes we just kind of develop the mentality that if you grew up in church, you're kind of going to go Christian ways. And if you didn't grow up in church, well then you're kind of not and nothing really is going to change. But our text says Jesus changes people. You may recall what we learned about this Samaritan woman. Let me just rehash a little bit of it. She's part of a culture, the Samaritans, an ethnic group, a religious group that hates the Jews, has no time for Jesus and his religion, has such a long history of animosity, almost a thousand years long, that they don't even speak to each other anymore, Jews and Samaritans. Not only that, but this woman individually has quite a history of her own. She's been through five marriages now. She's living with somebody else. Is a rather spotted past. She seems to have become somewhat of an outcast in the community. She's here at the wrong time, in the wrong place, and all alone. Why? Why? Except that she's a nobody. She's an outcast. Oh, but would you look at her now as we get on down in this text? After being confronted by Jesus and his claims and his offer of living water, his identity of who he is, we read here that she leaves her water pot and she goes running into town to tell everyone this must be the Messiah. In verse 39 to 42, her mission proves successful because here comes the whole town streaming out. People believe her. People who probably 
weren't used to even speaking to her. They returned with her to meet this Jesus. And, and, and some of them believe because of what she said and even more believe when they meet him and they hear for themselves he is invited to stay. They learn something happened. How do you account for the radical change in this woman from a nobody, a social outcast, estranged from any Jew, especially a Jewish rabbi, to a woman now changed? What happened? She was born again. She was born anew. Jesus changed her inside so radically that it can only be explained to say he gave her a new heart. He made her a new person. Dr. James Boyce identifies several pieces of evidence of this new birth. Three things, let me just pass them on briefly. He says, we see that new birth in that she begins to confess Christ. When a new baby is born, the first thing he does is he takes one big gulp of air and he lets out a squeal. He begins to say, I'm here, I'm alive, and he doesn't quit. And this brand new baby, when she understands who Jesus is and when she's confronted with the living uh, Savior, she takes a big deep breath and she goes running into town to tell everyone, I have found him. I have found the Messiah. No such thing as secret saints. God changes you, you begin to sound like a Christian. Second thing is her values changed. You know, when she came to the well, it's just a humdrum job, got to get water, it's hot, what a pain in the neck, got to walk out to the well, draw this water, get it back just to live, just doing the mundane task of life. Now look at her. Something has happened, it's changed her values so much, she leaves her water behind and goes running. She's found something better. She's found living water. And she's got to talk about it's more important even than getting water for her family. Her values changed. Evidence of new birth, new life. Third thing, she shows concern for the lost. This woman probably had a thousand reasons not to speak to the people in that town. They had probably looked down their scrawny noses at her so many times she could easily say, I'm done with them. I'm not even speaking to them anymore. And yet, here she goes. Concern for them, wanting to tell everyone what she's learned, who she's met. Why? Because when God gives us a new heart, he begins to work the love of Jesus through us to other people. That's just how it is. You see, here is evidence of real change in this woman. Living water beginning to flow, beginning to bubble up as a fountain within her, to put it in our terms. Or if your life seems beyond repair, there's so many problems piled on top of one another that you've given up hope of ever trying to sort it all out. You've tried to turn over a new leaf so many times and failed that you just can't even bear even thinking about trying again. I have good news for you. Jesus is still in the business of changing people. Jesus is in the business of taking lives off the garbage dumps and making them somebody, sons and daughters of the living God. Clean, adopted, completely changed from the inside out. And he can do that for you too. But I especially want to speak to you Christians who perhaps have had your perspective become so narrow that you only have hope for those who grew up in a church like yours and your view of the kingdom isn't any bigger than that. 
Well, this morning I would tell you that God has a whole different view of things. You see, that was the disciples' narrow little view. They probably passed this woman on their way into town. I'm sure they didn't speak to her. Jews didn't speak to Samaritans. They may have caused her to step off the path so they could go by. Their view of the kingdom didn't include someone like this Samaritan woman, but Jesus' view included her. When they come back, they're astonished. What's Jesus doing talking to this woman? They're embarrassed to ask him. But you see, Jesus came into the world to seek and to save the lost, the nobodies, the hopeless, the people that have been thrown out as garbage by society. And that's just exactly what he's doing, and he's still doing it today, concerned for people that even the church wouldn't be concerned about. But God's concerned to change and make them his sons and daughters. The disciples didn't care much about that here. They didn't see this woman as part of what God's plan might be, but they came to understand it. And later on, the apostle Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Though they throw me in jail, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Though they stone me and leave me for dead, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Though they put me on trial to cut off my head, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power to change people, to save them, everyone who believes. That's not just a message for the good folks, for the people who grew up in the faith. That is a message to every man and woman that lives on the garbage heaps of the world. God is changing people by the gospel. And that's good news. We're going to be ministers of Christ. We need to understand that. He didn't just call us to come and babysit one another. He called us to have a message that is powerful enough to address people in their deepest need and to say, Jesus can change you. When everything else has failed, Jesus can change you. Second truth in this passage for you ministers of Christ. Ministry is soul food that satisfies. Ministry is soul food that satisfies. Now we kind of have this notion in our society that the thing that would really make us happy is if we could make a lot of money. If we could just inherit or win the lottery or something. Just have a lot of money. Boy, then we'd be happy. I mean, I'd be content. I don't have to win $30 million. Just one would be fine. And I'd be content. That's a big lie. You know, rich people aren't any more content than you are. They have the same problems. They have the same family struggles. They have the same sickness. They die just like you do. Plus, they've got all the problems of wealth. And yet our hearts hunger for something and the big lie is that that would do it. That would make us happy. Oh, compare that, our common experience in our society, with what we read of Jesus here, verses 31 to 34. Jesus is tired, and he's hungry, and he's thirsty. We know he's, he's tired. Back in verse 6 of this chapter, he told the disciples, go on into town. I, I'm just going to sit here. I'm just too tired. And, and in verse 7, the woman comes and he asks her for a drink. He's thirsty. It's, the, it's noon. It's the heat of the day. And we know he's hungry because that's why the disciples went to town. They were hungry. They needed food. Now, Jesus didn't need a lot of wealth to make him happy. Just a, a cool drink and a, and a sandwich and, a, and 
place to sit in the shade would have just been delightful. But then when you go down here a little bit, look what happened. We don't know if he ever got the drink from the woman. He got to talking to her. Don't know if he got a drink, but here the disciples come with food, and he refuses the food. And they say in verse, in verse uh, 31, Meanwhile, his disciples urge him, Rabbi, eat something. And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And his disciples say, Could someone have brought him food? What happened here? How do you explain this? Here's Jesus who's hungry and tired and thirsty. And he sits down, and he's still hungry and tired and thirsty, and they bring food. And he says, don't need it. He apparently is refreshed. He apparently is invigorated. There's, there's something that's more important than being hungry and tired and thirsty. What is it? Did he win the lottery? What is it that has made him so satisfied, so fulfilled, so, so content that even his physical needs don't matter so much right now? What is it? Verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Pastor Bruce Milnes in Vancouver, B.C. writes, he speaks of the consuming satisfaction of his mission. The service of the kingdom is like food which sustains and fulfills. His speaking to the woman and telling her of living water, revealing himself to her so that she saw that there was an answer to her life, was spiritual food for Jesus Ministry, Jesus tells us, is soul food that satisfies. We're confronted every day with a world that's clamoring after money and sex and pleasure and power. And we say, that's not enough. You need the Savior. But let me tell you, Christians, we're tempted to fall into the same trap. And to begin to believe that the thing that would satisfy us is the same old stuff. More money, more success, more pleasure. But Jesus isn't talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to his disciples when he discusses that the thing that satisfies his soul is serving his Father. Completing his work. And that's true for us too. We can strive after something to satisfy us, something to fulfill us, something to make us feel better. And what we will learn is that we will never be satisfied and fulfilled by seeking satisfaction and fulfillment. It doesn't work that way. We've got to stop that and go serve Christ. Great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon that preached about the turn of the century preached his congregation in these terms in this passage he says some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings and bible studies and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you if you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go tell the gospel to dying people you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. Very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and not working gives men spiritual indigestion. 
be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you're ready to die of despair? Let us have practical Christianity, Spurgeon said. Spurgeon has proven true. In our day, therapy has overtaken the church. The church is into therapy. It's become the crying need of a generation of Christians who have more wealth and more education and more possessions and more freedom and more leisure time than any generation in the history of the church but have not learned that it is ministry giving ourselves away faithfully serving the Lord obedience to Christ it is ministry that is soul food that can satisfy us not seeking satisfaction for ourselves Jesus said in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. And brother and sister, that is our task too. And if we would ever know the satisfaction and the contentment that Jesus speaks of here, we will only know it in his way. Pursuing the will of the Father, laboring to finish his work. Ministry is soul food. That's satisfying. One more truth in this passage. Follows right on the heels of that. So go reap the harvest. Go reap the harvest. As one drives around the county these days, it's obvious that it's time to plant. It's a wonderful time of the year. Fields turned up, things being planted. It's a time of great expectation. What's it going to be like this year? Last year was a little dry. Everybody had to irrigate like crazy. Maybe this year is going to be better. Good crop, bad crop. wonder what it's going to be. It's a wonderful time of expectation as the crops grow and go in the ground each year. In the Bible, God often talks of his work, his church, his work with his people in terms of of uh, farming his field planting cultivating cultivating reaping a harvest of souls a harvest for eternal life and this is one of those passages it begins to talk to the disciples and he immediately begins to talk in farming terms but there's a specific background I think to Jesus statements here in verses 35 to 38 I think there's a specific background that maybe we need to mention if we're going to understand what he's saying. Back in the Old Testament prophecy of Amos, God had a lot to say in judgment against his people, but then at the end of the book he promised a day of great restoration. He said there's going to come a day when I'm going to restore the house of David. I'm going to raise up another king, one of David's sons, great Messiah, we see from comparing that with other scriptures. And he says in that day, there's going to be unparalleled blessing from God. He uses a farming metaphor. He says there's going to be a harvest that's so bountiful that the reapers and the sowers are going to run into each other. 
Now that can happen in two ways in this absurd illustration that Amos uses. Either the harvest is so great that you won't even be able to get it gathered in before they'll be coming and planting behind you again. Or that it'll be growing so fast and producing so much that you can hardly get it in the ground before the reapers are on your heels to harvest it because God is blessing. They're both, uh, both absurd illustrations, but that's what God says. He said, I'm going to bring a day of unbelievable, unparalleled blessing. Now, he's not talking about corn. He's talking about people. The blessing of his people, the blessing of his kingdom. God is going to build a holy people like nothing that Amos had ever dreamed of. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And he has a couple of things to say then out of that as he talks about the harvest. First thing he says is, now's the time. Now's the time. There's a little proverb that he quotes here. Four months and then the harvest. Now, I don't know anything about farming, but I could imagine that if you're farming and you work to get all the fields ready and get everything in, that there's a certain little sense of relief that there's a little downtime now. Look down the road a few months and then the harvest is coming, but now we can kind of sit back and say, later. And in fact, later is kind of our approach to the God's harvest all the time, isn't it? Well, we had a nice start here. We got, got things going in this church, and now we can sit back and see what God does, and later we'll look at it again and see how it's going. Or in our personal lives, we say, you know, when I get enough money together that I can retire and be independently wealthy, I may look for some way to serve the Lord later. Or we say, you know, I can't wait till the Lord comes, and he's going to set up this wonderful kingdom or whatever we dream up later. Later. And Jesus says, no, not Later. He says to his disciples, you, you say, later, later is the harvest. And Jesus looks and I think he sees the people coming out of the town of Sychar. The Samaritans coming toward him with the woman leading him. And he says, look, look, not later, not later. Now is the time of harvest. Look at the fields. They're ripe. Here they come. It's time to harvest. We are privileged folks to live in this great day of harvest. This colossal time when God is bringing people from every tribe and nation and family and race and clan and language and ethnic group. He's bringing them into his family and adopting them as sons and daughters. We live in a colossal time in the history of the world, the most impressive time that's ever been. There's no later. The fields are ripe. It's time to harvest. Go gather God's harvest. Second thing that Jesus points out to them is that though there's a great urgency, we're not in it alone. You know, if you're farming all by yourself, and whatever you plant is what you have to pick later. But imagine if you're part of a big farm, and somebody does all the planting, somebody buys all the seeds, and somebody plants it, and somebody tills it up, and whatever you do, and it gets time to pick, and then they hire you to come. Now this is my kind of farming. Just pick. Just go pick, right? Don't have to worry about if the weeds are going to get it. Don't have to worry about if it rains. Just Pick the harvest. 
my kind of army. Now that's a humbling thought because you're just a picker. Oh, but it's an exciting thought. The fruit, the benefit is ours. And then Jesus is saying here, this is the day that we live in. This is the day we live in. The apostles, the prophets labor for years. They never saw the harvest come. The apostles laid down their lives. Only saw the beginning of the harvest, the first fruits. People have labored. People have watered the soil with their blood. Now he calls us and he says, the harvest is ready. People are there for the picking. Go tell them about Jesus and pick the harvest of souls for eternal life. It's bigger than you. You don't have to be able to do it. Just go harvest. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to do all the planning. You don't have to do all the telling. Just go serve me because I'm bringing people to myself, Jesus said. And this is the day. Go reap God's harvest. Do you really have more important things to do than to worry about God's harvest? It's our privilege to live in the most privileged time in the history of the world, this age in which God is gathering people to himself. And is building a new house really more important? Or making a few bucks really more important? Or getting a new boat really more important? This is the most colossal thing happening in the history of the world. How could we go on and call ourselves God's people and not care about the big thing that God is doing? He's bringing his harvest of people to eternal life. This morning God seeks from us a willingness to be part of it. Don't know what it means. Don't know where, don't know who, don't know how. He says, I want you to be willing to say with Isaiah, Hear my Lord, send me. Whatever it is, I'm yours, Lord. Everything I am, everything I've got, I'm yours. Jesus is recruiting this morning. Sends me to recruit for him. Go reap the harvest. Will you? You young people with your lives all ahead of you, what are you going to spend them doing? Making a buck? Why? So you can leave a lot of money to somebody else? Oh, there's something more exciting, more colossal, more wonderful. Go reap God's harvest. You who are about to retire, what are you going to do with your retirement? Sit back with nothing to do and die young. There's opportunities everywhere. There's not enough money to fund everything. If you've got some income, go reap the harvest. There are hundreds of mission agencies looking for people that can help. Go reap the harvest. And the harvest isn't just all out there across the world. There are people right under our noses. Right under our noses. read recently that there are 60,000 Sikhs in Surrey. So we need to send missionaries to the world to reach people. People right here. They're the ones you shake your fist at as they pull out in front of you on the guy. 
God wants to reap a harvest of people like that. So who will go, God says. Who will I send? Who cares? Will you say, me, Lord, I'll go. I'll do it. I'll train. I'll learn how. I'll reap. Here am I. Send me. We live in a day of specialists, but God has called every one of us into the ministry. And in this text, he gives us some encouragement and some challenge. We need to remember that only Jesus can change people, but he really does. If we go out just trying to exert our personal influence on people, we're going to be, we're going to fail miserably. But the gospel is God's power to change people. We need to understand that the ministry, that serving Christ is food for the soul that satisfies. It's easy to believe the opposite because you don't get rich and you don't always get a lot of pats on the back. And sometimes it seems like you're wasting your life when you're serving the Lord. But in fact, serving Christ is the only thing that's worthy of your life. And it's the only thing that really will bring satisfaction and fulfillment. Whether you're standing in the pulpit or whether you're just sharing your faith with the guy you work with. Ministry of soul food. Finally, we need perspective. We don't just live in any old time in history. We're not just any old folks that need to make a living and get on with the mundane business of life. God has called us as his missionaries, as his ministers, as his servants, and he's entrusted us with the gospel in this day of great harvest, and he sent us every single Christian, everyone who names the name of Christ, he has sent you, with this commission, as you go into all the world in whatever way, in whatever place, make disciples for me. And I promise you, Jesus says, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. So go reap God's harvest. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, I pray that you would take your word and that you would drive it home to our hearts, Father. I pray that there might be some young people sitting here right now this morning who in the quietness of their heart even if mom and dad think they're too young to even be making such decisions would say Lord I'm willing I will train whatever training it takes and I will go wherever you send me to the ends of the earth if necessary to tell people of the Savior oh God call some people some of our children some of our young families, some of our retirees, all of us, Lord, and wherever we are, whatever we're doing, I pray that you would call us today and give us hearts of faithfulness to do the work of the ministry that you've given us to do. Lord, in a few minutes we'll be talking about other things and enjoying the fellowship and having dinner and all of this will be lost unless your spirit works in our hearts and changes us and makes a lasting change. And so I ask you to do that, Father, according to your plan, by your glorious power, for the praise of Jesus. Amen.